welcome to another episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We are writing code as engineers, no matter what programming language we are using, we are doing some form of problem solving. In this episode, we are talking about programmatic problem solving with Nicole. Nicole, can you give a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Um, yeah, I'm Nicole, and I am like Nicole Archambault is my full name. And I am both a self-taught front-end web developer and also at this point um, an educational technology entrepreneur. So I work pretty closely with educational technology and uh, online courses in particular. That's pretty much what I'm doing. I'm also pretty heavily involved in the newbie dev community. And uh, I do conference speaking as well on a wide variety of topics. I have, um, I'm a host of the Live Young Code podcast. Yeah, I've got a whole lot of stuff going on. But for the most part, that's me in a nutshell. It's a good resume. I like it. <laughs> and then what's your favorite happy hour beverage? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the happy hour beverage, I'm going to have to say... It's not really good for happy hour, but um, I ended up doing peach vodka, deep eddy peach vodka with iced tea, unsweetened iced tea today. I think it kind of depends on my mood, though. I discovered um, Capricio Sangria recently, which is 13.9% alcohol. So it's like (laughs) a party in a bottle. That's not really happy hour. That's after party. So yeah, they got But it's it is tasty though, right? Like I would assume the sangria is really good. It really is, except it's just deceptive because it comes in like a regular sized beer bottle type style. Let's also give introduction of today's panelists. Augustus, you want to start it off? Yeah, sure. Uh, Augustus Yoon, software engineer at Twitch. Jam Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose our keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Fundamental. 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 So if we say fundamental, fundamentals, we will all start taking our drinks. So I'm really interested to just start off. What is programmatic problem solving? I feel like that's, you know, we should start there as a bit of a definition or what we all think that. I feel like there's probably... A couple different answers. Yeah, I so I obviously had the first the same question at first too, um, and all I knew I didn't even know the term programmatic problem solving. I just knew it was something that I was struggling with and that I was missing skills in. Um, so programmatic problem solving is effectively the way that it looks while we're actually using it is that it's building an entire plan, kind of an approach to a particular problem before you even begin writing code. And so there are steps afterwards, of course, and that's usually where I find that especially new folks will jump in right away. What I find is that real life problem solving is only slightly different in that programmatic problem solving in particular relies on thinking in the way that a computer would think. So everything is more off on true, false, yes, no. We don't have that same gray area or kind of you have to build in your own fallbacks, stuff like that. So that's mostly where I tell my students that. But yeah, that is the programmatic part of programming. And it is one of the most fundamental skills that we can build um, in (laughs) snug that one in. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) So it is one of the fundamental skills that I have seen that new coders are mostly 
missing in the beginning. And I say this also from a personal standpoint, because I have a very personal story with programmatic problem solving too. But yeah, in a nutshell, that is what programmatic problem solving is. And it is very separate from actually writing the code itself. It's an entire process. I love that you said a new person coding. That's typically how you dive in. It absolutely is. I know when I first started, it was like, you just started coding to try and solve the problem instead of being strategic about thinking how's the best way. Not gonna lie, I still sometimes do that on like personal projects where I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, figure this out as I go. And I end up regretting it. Ended up just like it would have almost been a little better to just sit back and think a little bit more strategically about what am I actually trying to do and what's the best approach. You're not going to get it perfect. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't think you're going to map out the perfect solution. But I think you you end up thinking like a few steps ahead in how you're actually building whatever you're trying to build. Yeah, I've actually found and where it really hit me in the beginning was something that I call blank screen paralysis. So after you begin to move past working on these tutorials and kind of using, I started out with Treehouse initially, and you find that you're using what you learn and you feel, you know, you're gaining confidence. And that's the important part, truly. But once it starts to get tougher, which is where I got bottlenecked, you realize that it really is, I say, you know, programming is... 80% problem solving and 20% writing code. I mean, you can look up so much. There's documentation out there for writing code. There isn't documentation for approaching a problem. We have to actually use our noodle and we have to be able to to create something that makes sense or else your solution isn't going to make sense. Either it's not going to work at all or you'll be solving the wrong problem entirely, which I see too. Like not literally the wrong problem, but you misidentify what you need maybe as output. So it's, um, yeah, those are kind of some issues that I see though. And people get overwhelmed, you know, they get turned off if they're associating um, negative emotions too closely with the experience of writing code from scratch. So I wanted a way to help people, well, first off to help myself, but also to help other people to navigate that experience to really avoid a lot of overwhelm too. And um, it's it's a transformation, truly. I've worked with people in real life. I've worked with people, you know, kind of doing programmatic problem solving. I love group coaching on it because, like, they bring in um, problems and it's like, okay, let's pick this apart from the beginning. And that's the beautiful part. There is no code or code in the course. It's very language agnostic, code agnostic, because you don't need to be able to write code truthfully to learn how to solve problems. So yeah, that's that's a great place. It is one of those those true fundamental skills. But I was not intending that one. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. We're, we're keeping pace. <laughs> so Nicole, would it be too simple to say that like as a quick definition of programmatic problem solving, the planning before building? No. Well, there's one component there um, that it isn't being recognized with that statement in particular. You're absolutely not wrong. It is the planning leading up to when you're actually going to write the code that the computer executes. The other part of it is that, like in my course, I really focus on, I have a course called Newbie Coder Problem Solving School, and I'll mention that because these are skills that really need to be taught. But the, um, the other part of it is recognizing early what types and way earlier than you would if you just jumped in and, you know, floundered at step five writing code. 
it um, gives you an opportunity to identify some of the data structures, some of the variables, some of the different types of tools that you're going to use because you can plan, but at the end of the day, if you don't know what those individual tools, it's very much like tools in a toolbox. You can plan to build a house, but if you don't know how to use those tools, then good luck. Like They're nearly not going to give you very good if you don't understand why we need them and what they're used for and to create a clear, very crystal clear use case. So I'd actually be curious to even hear from Jem and Augustus. How do you think about when you start to, you get a feature that you have to build or, you know, maybe it is just a small feature, but maybe it's a large architectural change. How do you approach it? Do you just dive right in? I'll definitely say that before Twitch, I was a very like, we'll dive in and figure it out as we go <laughs> kind of approach. Um, I definitely, I, I definitely see there's a lot of value and like really props to you, Nicole, for like teaching this uh, planning up front because there are like a lot of scenarios where like it just really helps to get your mind wrapped around the problem and really think out all the edge cases. I, I would say like already both of my projects at Twitch, I I've had to, I am very, very thankful we like really thought out the project before we started like um, tackling it. Augustus, what what changed your mind there? Or, you know, like <laughs> you said, it, it took going to Twitch. Was it fellow engineers that you worked with or it was just the nature of the work that you were doing really called for it? It was definitely both. So uh, I actually, I, since the feature is out now, like I can talk, I can probably just talk about it. So the feature I'm, I was thinking about that I had to work on uh, was this picture by picture player. So I used to work on the video ad experience team. And when an ad runs on a stream uh, for people who aren't familiar with Twitch, there's a stream and every now and then a creator can run an ad. And we wanted to improve the ad experience by allowing them to show the stream uh, when an ad runs, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Like, you know, somebody's playing a game, they run an ad, and you still can watch the stream that's, like, muted. Um, so, you know you know me, I'm just like, let's just dive in, just render it. Um, that, of course, isn't very cool because if you think about, like, really large creators who, let's say they have hundreds of thousands of viewers... If they ran an ad, we would be loading hundreds of thousands of streams for that one viewer. And it's just it's just an incredible amount of TPS that the video service has to undertake. So <laughs> luckily, my manager, Wally, and some of the other engineers, like, you know, we really thought it out. Like, how would we go about it? How would we go about talking to the video team about handling this? And you know, the, at least the way we solve this problem is we actually batch it out. You know, it's not necessary that everybody gets the ad at the same time. So like if there were 100,000 people, maybe like we would dis disperse the ad slowly and then it's like serving like 20 streams a time or something like that. So yeah, I'm very glad we thought that one out through. Wouldn't it be terrible <laughs> if somebody ran an ad and all of Twitch went down? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you'd have a lot of uh, happy customers, that's for sure. Most definitely not. And it's so easy to not think about that stuff. As you, I'm sure as you become more of a professional, you begin thinking more of those edge cases. It really is just those beginners in particular that I really worry about because they miss that stuff entirely. I think of a lot of it is not even necessarily being a beginner. I mean, it, I think it's just like, a lot of that comes with just being bitten in the ass. <laughs> you start to you start to learn. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, we need to think about this edge case or that. 
And I think those are the times that it's just unfortunately you make mistakes and you learn from them and then hopefully prevent them in the future. Jem, you ju- you just dive it right in, right? Like your code is just on point. It's pretty every good. Single time. Pretty good most of the time. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it depends. I I'm more thoughtful now, but that's because I'm relatively fairly senior at Netflix, so I'm aware of the scope of the things that we're doing. I, I think the biggest failure is uh, I see people start, not necessarily Netflix, but in previous careers, um, you see people start with a problem, but they're not experienced enough to understand the scope of the changes that they're doing. I think that's where the idea of functional programming became stronger because you have more isolated components and you have uh, pure components, if you will, like where there's no side effects or anything. Uh, That's the appeal of that. Whereas, uh, you know, in school we learn OO programming, which is all about side effects, like left and right, and you just have to understand the scope of that. Uh, so yeah, these days I'm more thoughtful, but generally I do dive in first, and I try to understand like what all is at play, and then I kind of walk myself back and say like, okay, here's the steps that I need to get there. But it's not easy, and definitely in the microservice architecture, it's it's so complicated. I I try to explain to people how complex it is, and it works, but if you try to grasp it in your head, you can't do it. It's just like far, far too complex for any one person to understand all of it. Well, that's where I think also too is that's really interesting to Nicole's points of like this planning ahead and being strategic about it. When you're dealing with microservices or even cross-functional teams, you can't develop in a box. You really need to know what's that other team doing and how's this going to interact with that team? What happens if I change this? What are the rippling effects of that? And and really in the microservice systems, that is definitely things that happens. You you rely on each other really heavily. You know your part really well, but you don't know other person's part that you're working with. You rely on them and you have that conversation. If you just both went at it coding and, and trying to solve the problem, it just wouldn't work. And so, yeah, really getting back to how important it is to just do that programmatic solving before diving in, I think is 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 just the reason for all this discussion. Yeah, I, I love how you bring that up because yeah, definitely in like system design, really define like really understanding your services responsibilities versus your upstream or downstream dependencies that like plays a huge role like uh, in really like defining what the scope of work you should be doing and what you should be tackling, like what problems you should be focusing on rather than handling it somewhere else. I'll, I'll just give a shout out to. Uh... It's one of my picks today, but uh, what, I'll, I'll just go into it. I, just because uh, one of one of my uh, peers on the engineering team, Cole Turner, he wrote a blog post on called "What is" or it's about like what is being a senior engineer, and he summed it up really well, which is senior engineering is about impact. And if you say like if you just boil it down to that sentence, that encompasses all of it. So like as a junior engineer, you start off like, "Hey, change this button color." Cool. That, that's an easy problem to solve because that's encapsulated. If you break the button, you've only broken the button. Like it doesn't ripple out. And it's become like more mid-level. It's like change all of the buttons on this page and all of the pages. And then as you move up, it's actually, we need to create a reusable component that works across every organization about this button. And it's just like, it's the impact that you move up and up and up and up. And that's what makes a senior, senior engineer. So when you're talking about how do we approach problems? You have to think that way as you're moving up in terms of who's actually going to be impacted by that. 
And like, I, I know I'm giving some easy fortune cookie Twitter wisdom where I sound smart and it's easy to say, <laughs> but in reality, like we don't know the impact. If I, if I knew every impact of the code that I write, I'd be done already. I would just write the code and be done. Uh, it, but it's understanding that that kind of determines your seniority and how do you, how do you go uh, and solve those problems that really is kind of the differentiator between, uh, good engineers and just okay engineers. This is so insightful for me because I was telling Ryan, I don't really get a good look into big tech, like really ever. The best look that I get is talking to, especially when I went to conferences back pre-COVID, I found that I don't really get that much of that look into that world (laughs) because um, when I talk to recruiters, I'm doing my best to get a sense of, what it is at a big company, you know, we're starting, I look at my, my folks, especially the new coders, a lot of whom I work with, because I try and get them started as soon as possible with those fundamental skills. Hey. Hey. <laughs> we're overdue, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, they really, I do focus on the new folks. But then once they actually get their first jobs, I'm constantly asking recruiters from y'all's companies, like, what are you looking for in this? And they never actually mention programmatic like programmatic problem solving skills and then when I bring it up they're like oh my god yeah that's really important and it's funny there's a couple of things that and documentation too with all of these different moving parts especially in big tech and look as opposed to working on your own smaller projects and I'm trying to kind of run through in my head like okay so if you're starting on this component of you know a much larger project and like a bigger infrastructure what would you start with like, it's not just a sample project, you know, it's a, or a sample code challenge or something like that, where you have to write a couple algorithms. I almost feel like the problem solving approach would be almost, it would be more important there. It's, it's funny enough. I think there's, you know, when you're on larger code bases or like we, we joke about the microservices because it is super complex, but I kind of still think like a small project there's a lot of fundamentals. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> they kind of apply on the big and small projects. Like I joke that there's often times where I'm doing a smaller project for myself and I jump in just thinking, yeah, I'll just code away and figure this out as I go. I can do that. And, you know, it's it's not going to be breaking other services and things like that because the ripple effect is really just my own project that I'm building. But then when I start to look back or like I made a decision that ends up not working out so well, it's really hard to untwine and go back. Or I invite Augustus to come work on this project with me. And he's like, what, what is this? Like, I, I can't understand this at all. It's just like a mess of you weren't thinking this through. And so I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, just applies to like a large code base. I think this is important just to think about you know, what are you building? And you're never going to get it perfect. But if you can think about that a little bit more ahead. Yeah, the best places to start practicing this, I say, are with basic. You, even for you guys, I'd be like, start with something basic. You might be able to solve that in like two seconds, but I want to see you write it out. It's almost like back in school, they were like, I want to see your, probably, you know, you're writing out the long division. I don't, they don't do that. I just, <laughs> I just fucking aged myself right there. Like we had to do, now we do the, um, what is it? The, there's like a whole new system for it or something that the kids do. I have no idea. I don't I have kids. Still so. did. No, they don't. They've done like, um, there's a whole different math style like and they're like adding it up and angles and doing this and I'm like I don't know like that's 
math was always really tough for me. I have a nonverbal learning disability that wasn't diagnosed until 32 years old. And actually that I didn't really go into my story. Do you guys mind if I like pop into that really quickly as far as sure love to hear yeah, some background yeah. yeah I actually because some folks are like how did you end up working with problem solving kind of in general I've always been a nerd when I was young you know I grew up in the MySpace kind of live journal building that was my first exposure with inline you know styles and just copying and pasting oh, many people's of us sites were there, yes. <laughs> and those good old days where you could just you know days. fumble around i had really considered myself and i was pretty you know adept at computers kind of playing online games building websites and what have you and then i got to college and high school had been a struggle for me too because of that nonverbal learning disability so i was i fought through it though that has been the story of my life it does not matter what i've been faced with i will overcome it period there's no other option for me. And that's one of the huge reasons that I have been able to get where I was from a pretty messy background. So my freshman year at Wellesley, I was dating this guy who went to Worcester Polytech. And he was going for software engineering in a computer science degree. And I was kind of like, that's a thing. <laughs> I mean, I considered like IT and what have you, like when you think about computers, but I had totally missed the whole somebody has to write the software part, you know, you just don't really think about that in the big picture. At least I didn't. So I started out the computer science major because I was like, oh, I'm pretty good with computers. I'll be fine here. So I get through, you know, 101 and we're learning fundamentals and writing basic stuff. Oh, I sent fundamentals again. <laughs> that one cheers. wasn't even good intentional. Bam, cheers. <laughs> so I'm not going to say it was all gravy up until CS230, which was, you know, my sophomore year, which was data structures and algorithms. It was a struggle for me still. I was like having difficulty because one of the, the hallmark things with a nonverbal learning disability is that if I can't build like a mental model for it, then it's just not going to click for me. Like I need something tangible that I picture when I close my eyes that I can manipulate or something that I can liken it to in order for me to be able to really make it click. It, it, we just need more accommodations. Like it takes me longer, but I can do it. So that's why like on time testing, what have you. So I get to computer science 230 and I am sitting here sweating bullets in class and I can't write basic functions. Things are moving way too fast for me. I am getting blank screen paralysis like crazy. And I had one of my best friends, I love her, she's like total nerd status. And we hung out together and she was hilarious. And I'd just be sitting there. Eventually, I started getting a lot more quiet in our interactions. We'd be hanging out, working on the computer science stuff. And I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And she does. And I'm really feeling lost and confused and I almost failed um, Computer Science 230, which again, data structures and algorithms. I've heard after the fact that people consider that to be a CS kind of bottleneck, like a weed out course, which is not fair. I let them convince me that maybe the struggle wasn't worth it. I changed majors. I am at the point in my life where I try not to have any regrets, but all during my 20s, I had major regrets about that. So I should have stuck with computer science. Should have, I would have had money. I was graduating into the recession. But what happened to kind of lead me toward this direction is that I did actually end up coming back to it. You know, I've always said, if you find that you love something, you're always going to come back to it in one way or another. 
And so I ended up revisiting. I had a career. I went from customer service to web development. And I just, again, when you're starting out, just build websites. And you don't realize, especially looking at the front end, how much is actually involved in that. And you have to really know more. So, of course, what comes up again? Algorithms and data structures. Data structures. I mean, you can't avoid it. Everything comes back to the data structures. You can't avoid it. But there was something very different this time. I hit it. I went through that really like flitty period where I was like, oh, crap, JavaScript. I hit this point. That's hard. And then I went back to like Ruby and then like PHP. And I was like, every time I got to that point where I was expected to write something myself, I was just like, shit, I can't do this. It's like... Wellesley all over again. What happened? I thought I was so good at computers. I'm just at a loss. And there were really two, let's say foundational, but let's start fundamental. <laughs> My ice is melting. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. <laughs> but yeah, I get to the point again with three different languages. And I'm like, what the fuck? I cannot get past this point unless I miss, you know, unless I double back. And I actually wrote a blog post at so that point and was like, how I scale back on learning coding and switched, you know, back to programmatic problem solving. I didn't even know that was the problem until I had read a couple blog posts. Long story short, the two things that were the biggest problem for me is that I had zero problem programmatic problem solving skills back in college. I did not think like a programmer. And between that and also self-teaching skills, I was too stressed out to be able to learn. I didn't have an approach. I was using textbooks when textbooks were not the best way for me to learn. I learned, you know, at 29 years old, I changed careers. And I was like, what is this sorcery that suddenly I can learn all this shit? And I could not learn it before. And a huge part of that was online courses and educational technology. Oh, they're so much mm-hmm. better. They're I way better them. now. Yeah. And that's why I ended up creating online courses, focusing on educational technology, on problem solving and teaching yourself. I hit all of them in my career. It was just, I've always been like, if you walk into a room, there's no one there. It doesn't mean you're in the wrong room. It's like set up camp. You know, there was nobody writing or talking about fundamental. Yeah, my ice really is (laughs) melting now. So I'm good. might chug this. (laughs) What I also liked about it too is like the the part about self-learning I think is really important too is being also vulnerable enough to say like, hey, I don't know this. And asking for help, whether that be going to an online course or pulling up a book or leaning over to a fellow engineer or friend or our industry is awesome for just online. Like people are helpful. I love it. People will answer questions you ask on Twitter or, you know, forums, whatever. Actually, forums are old. <laughs> we use now, like you jump on, you jump on Slack or or whatever it is. There's ways to get information that is so great. I definitely remember starting out not knowing all this, these things, and you just kind of had to learn as you go. But I definitely was always scared to say, "Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know how to do this." It was is tough, but now at least admitting that and saying, "Hey, there's an online course on this," or uh, there's a great textbook or there's so many resources out there, which is it's so much easier now like people kids these days They don't they don't know how good they have it like in the old days There was no stack overflow like there, there wasn't even debugging tools. It was like mm-hmm. it wasn't even console log It was alert everything and like that's how you <laughs> that's how you did it And I think yeah, people yep. miss that like how far we've come since the beginning and, and Nicole your story is interesting because I think some of what you're touching on is the issue and one of my main issues with CS degrees, like I have one, but 
they teach you a lot of theory and that's fine, but it just doesn't, it doesn't sink in because you can't apply it to anything. So uh, honestly, if I, if I had to do it over and I had the opportunity, I would get some CS degree just so I have some like foundation there, but I would try to get a job in the real world and then go back and get my degree because I feel like I would absorb so much more because I understand the importance of it versus like, oh yeah, here's how to, uh, I don't know, balance a bee tree. Cool. What what use does that have to me in the real in the real world? But if I'm like, oh crap, I need to design a database. I don't know why I would. I need to understand B trees very deeply. But it's yeah, that, that that's my problem with CS degrees is the theory is not I have those eight steps. I can run down them and I'm really curious to hear your feedback. So there are eight steps here that I have um, that I they're very basic. Um, to solve, for example, for a new coder to solve a problem, like a challenge, a code challenge or something, just from scratch, where they give you a challenge, here's your input, maybe they could do a little bit of, you know, the testing built in on the platforms, you know, it's going to check if you're getting the right output. And that's where a lot of folks really do get caught up. And again, being a professional developer, it might be like, well, that's not usually a problem for me. It, it's a big problem for some folks. So... Step one that I have is just to read and understand the problem. And that seems like something that's so, like so basic. But truly, I don't think that a lot of the folks really going in, like if you can't explain it to me, then you don't understand it. And that actually leads into step two, which is rephrasing the problem. You're going to use your own words. You're going to move things around. You're going to, like for me, I put bullet points down on the bottom. I use caps and bold to kind of really indicate what I, and I put it right in my code editor. You know, I will do every part of this in my code editor. Um, step three is to identify your input, your output, and your variables. So this is stuff that you can actually do early on, and it will help to give you a sense of what you're going to be working with in terms of data structures, in terms of, you know, what important information you have to save at every point. And you might not even have an answer for some of these, but it's intended to get you thinking about it. You want to make sure you know what's going in, what's expected to go in, and then what's expected to go out. Expected is a very new word for some of these folks, too. And it has a lot of implications. But the um, step four Finally, and a lot of people jump in here too. I just did a podcast episode on this. Um, you break down the problem in step four. So, you know, I do uh, pretty commonly a shopping, you know, going grocery shopping might be like a function. Um, but there's so much that goes underneath it. You know, you have to get into your car. You have to, maybe you have to make a list. It depends on the parameters of the problem. But at the same time, you have to break it down. And then at that point, you have to pseudocode. At step five, you start pseudocoding. So you're going to take all this stuff that you've already prepared. You've already kind of done like a Mason Plus with all of your information already set up. And so it's not hard. Every step builds on the next, and it gets easier and easier with each step. So you're pseudocoding. You basically have an, you know, a story written in English of what you're going to do. And writing your code in step six is going to be basically translating it. That stuff to look at is so much easier to look up on like Stack Overflow asking questions than if you were just like, how do I solve this problem? Like, I mean, I wouldn't even want to ask something like that on Stack Overflow, to be honest. <laughs> I'd probably be skewered. <laughs> but like at that point, step six is when you're writing your code. And then, of course, after that was step seven, you're going to debug. 
And I typically help folks with that, you know, to recognize where they can really tighten things up, where they can, and optimizing is step eight. And that's where we look at what you can tighten up. Um, the debugging, you know, there are lots of tools that we can use as well, depending on what you're working with. But those are basically the eight steps. And that's it. You can use those steps with any language, any stack, any technology, gen any technology in general. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's the beautiful part of those fundamental skills is that you can, um, cheers. <laughs> it's a beautiful part because everybody can follow those steps and really make put their solution together and make sure they have a tight solution before they even write code. So yeah, I'm curious to hear your feedback on that. Do you guys follow that even loosely? I would definitely say loosely. I think that's there's certain things where I'm like, yeah, I could maybe see myself doing it. But what I do like about the steps is more the thinking of it. Mm. It's like just like putting a little more rigor around the thinking up front before jumping in. So things like the pseudocode, I don't know that I'm likely going to do that, but I, <laughs> Jem's laughing, <laughs> but I, I don't think I would. But wireframing and thinking about those interactions and, and meaning like a wireframe of like the flow and how that's going to work, that really helps me think about how I can break down a problem or even start to build out components, which in a way is kind of pseudocoding. It's just not getting really granular as like, oh, here's the exact uh, thing that's going to happen. But if I'm working with a backend engineer where I'm expecting a response or there's a back and forth like that, then that is a little bit of the pseudocode because you're kind of mocking out what I'm, what's the expected response that I'm getting and what am I posting back to the uh, backend. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think like, You've just summarized it really well in all these steps. I'm likely going to skip some of those, but not always. Maybe I like the rubric to say, just think about these steps and then choose the ones that apply. That's my that's my thought on it. But I'm curious on Gem and Augustus. I jumped right in. I think, sorry, just in terms of the wireframing, like you mentioned, that's a word that I haven't heard in a minute. I think that's really your steps three and four is between identifying is, your input. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of between those two and then breaking down the problem adequately. I think you're kind of touching on those two during your wireframing experience. I, I, yeah, some of those steps are definitely, they resonate with me and they're, some of them I apply. Um, I, I, I think the failure, and I've seen this in interviews, is one, it's, uh, I talked briefly on it earlier, talking about like senior engineers, newbie engineers, blah, blah, blah. The mistake I made moving from a startup to like a more senior role is I expected the problem to be laid out clearly. And 99% of the time now, it's very ambiguous. Ryan will say, the build is slow. I need you to take a look at that and fix that. And like, I'm like, cool, no problem, Ryan. I got you. And then months, months later, it turns out that was actually a really, really, really insanely hard, complex problem. Uh, and I've seen people fumble in interviews on this because they're coming from a smaller company where the, the problems are more encapsulated. And then I ask them a very high level, broad question, and they can't break it down properly because they're used to it being framed in a more specific manner. And like, I, I've seen, I've seen it time and time again with people just failing interviews because like they can't like widen their scope. Like they're used to like such a narrow focus. Um, right. Like in your example, Gem, it would be like me coming to you and saying, hey, the Gem, the build's not working or it's really slow because in this point in the code right. or this area, 
this needs fixed. And then you're like, okay, I can go fix that. <laughs> it may still take some time, but you're, you're actually thrown right where you need to be versus, Hey, that's, this is slow, man. You got to go figure that out. Exactly. And then when you get to, I guess like staff or principal engineer, no one tells you the problems. You find the problems and then you go solve them. And I, I wish we would articulate this more in terms of like engineering as a uh, community, like what's expected because you expect these problems to look like this, and every time you move up a little bit, they look a little bit different. They look a little bit different. They look a little bit different. Until there's not even a problem anymore, it's just like, well, crap, what do I do now? I, they're paying me to do something. I need to go find these problems and then go solve them. <laughs> so like, I, I think the steps are, are really good. It's a good place to start. Um, but I would also say, like, make sure your scope is really broad, like, and then narrow it down. And don't don't assume all problems will be handed to you because <laughs> oh, yeah. they won't They're be. They're usually pretty ill-defined <laughs> in my experience. Exactly. And that's it. you got to make sure, I said, if the problem isn't written down for you, like in a code challenge, which you're going to take advantage of that now because yeah. that's about the most <laughs> clearly defined problem you're ever going to face. Even then, I think code challenges, I'm like, you, you should ask follow-up questions, right? Like yes. in an interview or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Or at least in my opinion is they should be a little bit ambiguous and like you should ask questions because there's always trade-offs and things like that too. So Augustus, are we off base or are we... Uh... No, no. Actually, uh, Jem pretty much stole what I was going to say. But, Sorry, but first I want to... <laughs> but, but actually, I wanted to say that, Nicole, like I was actually thinking about it and Honestly, I think if everyone did that for the interview, they would do so much better. I actually see so many candidates that skip some of those steps, like even like subtle ones, like defining the input and output. Like, I think some people don't even think about like, oh, I can actually change that. Like I've had people who like, you know, it's like, oh, write this function and, you know, just print out a bunch of stuff. And a lot of more senior engineers would be like, oh, you know, this would be better as like a helper method and return to string and then you know, it'd be reusable and stuff like that. So I, I, I actually think those one to two, one to eight steps are very, very useful. Um, but I do really, really agree with Jim. Like, especially as like you get senior, I feel like that number one, that problem is so vague sometimes. And you really have to work like backwards from, let's say you're working with a PM, they want to ship a feature. At, at least in my experience, a lot of PMs think of metrics like how do I move this metric here's a feature that helps me do that and you really have to like dig into like okay so if this feature if I just did this would that be cool and they'd be like oh no 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 <laughs> oh that's not gonna work no like I'm trying to move this metric and it's like okay so and it's like it's like really really redefining the problem um, so and I think you kind of touched on that like number one and number two you like cl clarify define the problem and then rephrase it to yourself I feel like there's like some part where you really just have to align with everyone on this is the actual problem we're trying to solve. I love that, Augustus. In Nicole's uh, points that was early on, of rehearse it and go through, does this actually make sense? Yes. The good point is, is when you're working with cross-functional partners, is this is the way I've interpreted it. Is that clear? Yeah. Because yeah, you could go off and say like, oh yeah, I totally get all these instructions. And they're like, that's not what I said. I mean, you thought that's what they said, but it wasn't clear. So I, I think that's a very valuable point. Yeah, and you had actually mentioned um, as well the focus on doing the rephrasing and what have you. I do put emphasis on asking questions, follow-up questions. Yeah. 
But when you're new and working with the code base site or um, with the code challenges, I guess that that would involve kind of going into the forums maybe because like who else are you really going to ask if you have questions? But I really want to normalize asking questions about the problem. I don't care if you don't really need to know them, like if you already know the answer, like frame a question for it because once you get into like your type of sphere working with these problems, not only are they often super ill-defined, but you have to like figure out the problem yourself to begin with. And you have to ask about the parameters. You have to, you know, you can break stuff and then ask, you know, is this what you wanted? And then kind of go back, but you're going to waste time at the end of the day and a lot of energy if you're not making sure that you understand the, the what you're actually trying to do and how you can do it. So we want as much information about the problem as possible. I would say if you can come up with three questions about the problem, just to like clarify something to that. I really like the idea of that because I think that's one of the most valuable skills that they could probably, you know, the new coders could probably learn is to be curious about these problems because they're not going to be defined for them clearly at that point when they're professionals. Yeah, and it's, it's never gets clear. It's never it's, defined yeah. if you're ever looking for it. It's, it's just doesn't work. 90% of the work is step one, finding out the problem. <laughs> it's like, it could take weeks. It's taken me weeks before. To, and I should add for um, this, those steps, like, yeah, I, I think we all approach the problems a little differently. And some we agree on, some we don't. But I think for an interview, those steps are perfect. Because, like, the interview problem is going to be encapsulated. And it's not going to be, it shouldn't be too ambiguous if you're getting a good interview. And, like, knowing how to approach a problem, rephrase it, break it down, do some pseudocode, and then translate that into actual code. And then finally, at the end, step eight is optimize, which people tend to overdo and then don't solve the problem. I think it's a perfect rubric for breaking down an interview problem. Yeah, I find too, you can go back later in the problem if you found that maybe there's a better way to solve something, you can maybe combine some steps, but do go back and change your pseudocode in that case. Do go back and change, show that you changed your approach. That's another one of those things, a little extra step, but man, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So you think, though, that going in, or it sounds like you know, going into a tech interview and really kind of doing the long division on it, so to speak, showing the way that you think that that would be a big benefit to bringing someone onto your team? Yeah, here's why. And Jem, you can add more because since you brought it up. But for me, you're explaining your thought process. So it's not even to me if you get the right answer. Do you know what I mean? It's not so much about the right answer. If you walk me through your thoughts and I can follow that along, that's huge. To me, that is the important thing. It's not I'm dinging you because it didn't work. It could work and you, I have no idea how you got there or your thought process. And I might still not be that happy. For You're like, oh, cool, that worked. Did you just get lucky? But having someone walk you through that is huge. It is. It shows so much about how you think too, which is critical. I really want to make sure that people are focusing in. I use kind of the term the mise en place, having everything, you know, ready and set up kind of like, so that's like preparing all of your ingredients before you actually cook. So, and it's so aesthetic. I love seeing like people setting up all their stuff and little containers and what have you, but really that's it is just having all that set up. I would like to see somebody's mind the way they think, you know, there are so many ways that you can do it before you even get to that second interview, you know, make sure that you get to the second interview by doing that, you know, or whenever they're going to give you a whiteboard interview. I, actually, I, I don't know if that's as common as it is it to like actually at your companies to do whiteboard interviews with like a certain it's common with the big tech companies 
I do enough so that they're writing like entire books on how to like crack the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's where it's really important though to be able to walk through that long vision because then they know you didn't just use a calculator, which is case like, you know, stealing some code or, you know, having it written on the inside of your arm. (laughs) I think this is a lot of amazing advice. If I was to summarize it, it's like, take a step back before jumping in. Mm-hmm. And that will lead us right into picks. So each episode of the Front End Happy Hour <laughs> podcast, we love to share things that we found interesting. Jem loves to share us the most ridiculous things that exist in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Got so many. I shouldn't say in Silicon Valley, just with people with too much money that want to purchase something. <laughs> but yeah, let's jump into picks. Augustus, you want to start it off? Sure. Yeah. It's crazy you brought up Jem because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of my picks is a talk. You pick Jem? That uh, yeah, I I would love to pick. Jem. Always pick Jem. Um, in fact, that's my first pick. My first pick <laughs> is Jem. Uh, but oh, my so my one and a half picks is um yeah Jem's giving a talk on why interviewing is terrible, which very coincidentally we were talking about. <laughs> and oh, uh, you know, I definitely think you should check it out. You know. Uh, oh yeah. This yeah, I'm very excited. Oh, I've, I've oh. seen a preview of it. It's good. Ooh, thank you. Yes, yes. It's it's part of React Rally, so I'd definitely check it out if you can. And then uh, my second pick. Um, so ever since COVID, I've gotten really obsessed with coffee. Uh, I, I well, I guess I've always been obsessed, but I think <laughs> I've gotten to a new level where I go to the espresso subreddit. And everyone, everyone convinces me like, oh, like, yeah, you could get the Barista Express for 500. But if you move to the Gagia Classic, which okay. is like 1200 light years difference. You know, it's like it's like so. But uh, but my actual pick is um, there's this person named James Hoffman. He's a YouTuber. Um, he used to, he used to do barista competitions. You know, so he knows his stuff. And. Uh, his stuff is very entertaining, teaches a lot about what coffee is, and he has so much passion. I just really enjoy watching his videos and, you know, think it's worth checking out. I, I don't drink coffee, which, like, blows people's minds. I don't know why, but... You're missing out. Uh, <laughs> You're missing out. Uh, I, I put coffee people in the same category as wine people. I think 95% of people don't know what they're talking about. Like, sure, if it's expensive, it's tastes, good. It's good. Yeah. And, like, I've seen enough documentaries where, like, if or in studies that if they give people a cheap glass of wine and tell them it's expensive, they'll say it's better. And the same goes for coffee. So like I. But what's an expensive cup of coffee? Like like five, ten dollars? Like what are we talking here? Yeah, 15, and you're 20. talking hot coffee. Yeah. I yeah. Love iced coffee. I like iced coffee too. Oh, so you're, you're not purist. There is infinite money you can spend on coffee. Just like wine. There's infinite money you can spend on it. And I, I don't know. I question people like that. Teach their own. I'm not, not going to say... Augustus, you're wrong or anything. Because, like, no, <laughs> no, no, to no. teach... I admit, I don't know coffee. <laughs> I, that's <laughs> I, I don't think most people do. Like, that's yeah, that's my I, theory. I, I would agree. And I, I do think that, like, getting knowledgeable about something, like you're doing watching the YouTube videos and things like that, does help you appreciate things more. Like, the more Michelin star food I eat, the more I appreciate, like, even regular food. And I think there's that level, but... I think there's the other level where people don't spend any time educating themselves like you are doing. And they just like buy expensive equipment and expensive coffee and be like, (laughs) this is surely the best coffee in the world because I spent $10,000 on it. And, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe it is. And like, who am I to say different? But anyways, that's my opinion on coffee people and wine people. You're welcome. Those aren't even my picks. 
Uh, my- <laughs> I know, I love it. It's just a gem slash rant there. Uh, I just want to preface my uh, talk on why interviewing is terrible. At the bottom, it says a gem young rant. So I don't want people to get their hopes up. It's literally me going on a rant about interviewing. So it's good I have a platform to do it. Uh, my first pick is a... Um, it's a pick by, or it's it's a page by Lenny uh, Richitsky. I think I'm getting that wrong. But anyways, when I sit down to write something, like write up a technical problem, the hardest part I always have is, where do I get started? Like, what do I say? Because my, my uh, inclination is always the narrative style. Like, I like to tell a story, much like my coffee rant you heard two minutes ago. Like, I, I like a good story. But when you're talking about technical papers that other people have to read, um, that's not really helpful. You want to get just to the point. Like Ryan reads 10, 20, probably 50 docs a week. You can't have like whole story. So what's helpful is having a template to get started with that answers just basic questions. And um, Lenny came up with this list of here are my favorite one page templates for describing a, a project. It's mainly for project managers, but I find it's useful for anything, especially some of the larger scale projects we work on. It's just like, Here's how to lay out, here's how to structure your questions, and here to, here's how to lay them out. Very similar to Nicole's uh, way of breaking down a problem. It's the same thing, or it's similar, but for writing a technical doc. And it's been so helpful just because, like I said, I sit down and I'm like, where do I get started? So just having like something filled out a little bit has really been helpful. Uh, my second pick, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Cole Turner, he has an Ask Me Anything page. And... Cole is a fantastic writer, uh, and that shows in a lot of the work he does. And he's just answered dozens and dozens of questions about like what it means to be a senior engineer, how do I join a fan company, and he just like gives honest answers. And I think it's one of the more uh, clear uh, just way of getting answers from someone who's actually in Silicon Valley, who's not like trying to push a way of thinking or anything. He has, he has no he has no buy in for answering these questions. He's just doing it because he wants to help the community out. Uh, my favorite one is, um, what is a senior engineer supposed to do? I'll, I'll leave you to read that yourself. But it's just, it's like the best answer I've ever read on what a senior engineer is and what we actually do. So that's Cole Turner's Ask Me Anything. Uh, shout out to him. My final pick is, do you all, so Augustus, Ryan, Nicole, do you all have, are you, are you familiar with a uh, foam roller? I am very familiar because I have picked Hell it on some yeah. previous uh, episode. Ooh. I use them all the time. <laughs> mm. I love them, especially if you're doing like work. Like I, um, I've been doing a lot of squats and like my calves are starting to really feel it too. So being able to use a foam roller, oh, it hurts too at first, but then it hurts so good. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're insanely useful. But what if I told you all, you've been doing it wrong this whole time. What would you say to that? And by doing it wrong, is it because I only paid $20 for my roller? Yes. This week's Valley Silicon Fic is the part of the show where I pick things that are so expensive and only exist because we make too much money in Silicon Valley. There is a smart foam roller. (laughs) I I will never run out of material for this. A smart roller? It's a smart roller. Because unlike you pours using your regular foam roller... This one is Bluetooth enabled, so it can adjust the sensitivity because... (laughs) Wait, what's the intensity even do? You you can can, adjust the intensity of the roll. That is fair. I will say, like, you can have different, like, 
density on your foam rollers. There's softer ones. There's harder ones. So okay, okay fine. Oh. That's what? pretty cool. So why not a smart one that right. does it how all much, how much for are you? How talking, though? How much are we A measly $150. That's not... Yeah, too much. Pocket change. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'd rather, I rather have 150 off a Gagia Classic. Or buy two foam rollers for $20. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could buy your soft, hard, and medium for like probably 70 60 70 dollars total yes but then you wouldn't have the smart foam roller and when people come over and see your smart foam roller sitting in the corner or whatever what people do in your closet yeah innovative wave design <laughs> yes so if you're in the market for a smart foam roller their body will sell you one for 150 dollars. it has bluetooth connectivity I don't know why, but that's why it's Valley Silica. Nicole, now you got to follow that. What kind of picks do you have for us? Yeah, bet. Like, I'm not trying, but I was like a little bit stuck and I'm not going to try and do anything really programming related besides one book I have that I swear by. And I didn't bring it in here. It's in the other room because I read it so often. Um, by V. Anton Sproul. We we're talking about um, programmatic problem solving today. Um, the book is called Think Like a Programmer. An Introduction to Creative Problem Solving. And this is, I'm really hoping I was talking to, um, I believe it's Professor Sproul back in um, last year, and then just everything was busy, but I'm really hoping I can get him on the podcast to ask some problem or some questions about his problem solving approaches. The crazy part is it eventually does go into, I think they have a Python version of the book. In the beginning, they talk about puzzles and ways to really begin to think programmatically and kind of steps for approaching. But again, I was like, I can do this with no no code. I can do this. Like, I, I'm just going to, I love challenging myself that way. So like my course and a lot of the learning that I've done has come from books like this, but it, it is really comprehensive. Again, that was Think Like a Programmer. An Introduction to Creative Problem Solving. That's by D'Anton Sproul. Um, my second one is absolutely, so I've been hosting that Zoom hangout on Saturdays because we're not supposed to go out and you definitely shouldn't be going out to party with people. <laughs> but yeah, I have like tons of people that come to, we've been calling it the after hours vibe. I decided to brand it because I'm a big nerd. And then people show up, they pop in. I share the link, obviously not publicly. Um, so I got to give big old shout outs to, um, to my Nullbus folks. We have been a growing family, but I'll tell you, I have more of a social life now than I did before the pandemic because, and I've met so many amazing people that have supported me a thousand percent over like everything. And we just talked during the day. It has made such a big difference. And these are all just tech industry folks that kind of like they move toward me. So they're all as weird as I am. And like they, we just kind of created this big old dysfunctional family. So yeah, big shout outs to Nelbest Vibe Planet. I love you all. Um, and the last one, I actually might have to kind of combine a couple because I really couldn't decide. It's between um, the Taco Hell Grilled Cheese Burrito. And you should <laughs> probably get it with steak because it's better than beef, in my opinion. Um, they will charge you a little bit more, but you're making tech money, so it shouldn't be a problem. And... Battlestar Galactica. I just finished watching it, like the the remake. Or there's supposedly going to be another remake soon. I mean, really? Unless Edward James Olmos and Mary McDonnell are in it, and like everybody else, I'm not really interested. <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit sacrilege, but you know. But yeah, no Battlestar Galactica, man. I um, 
I love that shit. (laughs) (laughs) I have two picks. One is actually another podcast, but it's an episode of on a podcast, which is I found really interesting. It's the 20,000 Hertz podcast. It's an episode on Netflix and the sound, the tadam sound when you start Netflix, when you see the logo come. And and so it's really interesting. It has Todd Yellen, uh, someone that we work with at Netflix. He He's talking about him and his team and how they came to like wanting a sound logo and and talk how they got to that logo and then it's just really really interesting and then they even pull in the sound designer to talk about how it was created so i really really enjoyed it especially it's a sound i don't even know how many times i've heard i'm sure everyone listening to this has I'm heard it, it many many times i'm hearing it in my head playing Uh-oh. over and over again now. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then a netflix original i gotta why not keep going on the netflix theme one that's not new i started watching it and then never came back to it but it was ugly delicious i it's such a great show just exploring different foods and and really the history and and like really depth on historical reasons and ethnicity around the foods. I love it. It was super interesting. I highly recommend it. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Nicole for joining us. Uh, It was a pleasure having you on. You shared a lot of great knowledge with us. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I am mostly on Twitter these days, which was something I never thought I'd say until like after 2015 when everyone's like, get on Twitter. So I'm on there. Got a kind of strange presence, but you can follow me at um, it's lovey on code, but it's L-A-V-I-E underscore E-N-C-O-D-E. So kind of a play on lovey on rose, but lovey on code. Um, So be sure to follow me there. I also have all of my stuff like the blog, the podcast, my courses housed up on my main site at levioncode.net. So just like the name of my Twitter handle, but without the underscore and then .net. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can find us on frontendhappyhour.com. Subscribe to whatever you like to listen to uh, Front End Happy Hour on. And you can follow us on Twitter at frontendhh. Any last words? Kind of want that Taco Bell i know i'm sitting here looking at the clock now what like oh man i only got half an hour now that i have you can make it you can make it (laughs) go fast